Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. From Sundance TV and Sundance Now, this is The Truth About True Crime. I'm Amanda Knox. Join me as I explore the dark corners, dig into the unresolved questions, and get personal with the humans at the heart of Sundance True Crime documentaries. Tony and Susie were our gods. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Amen, Christians. In the 60s, young people came to California wanting to find a better life. To join this cult meant eternal salvation. Him that believeth not shall be damned. I said, I need to leave. And she said, I'll fucking kill you before I let you do that. Susan rocked her head back and cackled like a hyena. She says, can you believe how fucking stupid these people are? That's Carrie Miller talking. He was a teenager when he got sucked into the fire and brimstone congregation of Tony and Susan Alamo. It may not have been a cult at the beginning, but it certainly was at the end, when Tony was ordering beatings, taking child brides, and making millions through a network of fraudulent businesses that were shielded from scrutiny by their status as a religious organization. So why did Carrie join this cult? He's not stupid, as you'll find out in a moment. Why did so many others join? Why did they turn a blind eye as Tony Alamo transformed from a con artist to arguably a kidnapper, a torturer, and a rapist? You heard Susan's answer. Can you believe how fucking stupid these people are? That doesn't do it for me. Calling the followers of Tony and Susan Alamo brainwashed sheep doesn't tell us anything useful. What I want to know is, how did they get to that point? And for those who fall in, how can they climb back out? How can we help them? These are the big questions that haunt me when I think about Tony and Susan Alamo. What makes a cult tick? What tactics do cult leaders use? What leads people to join, to stay? And how do they escape? This season, I'm going behind the scenes of another cult story, but a very different one. The upcoming Sundance docuseries, Ministry of Evil, The Twisted Cult of Tony Alamo. Unlike Jim Jones and the People's Temple, the Tony and Susan Alamo Christian Foundation seems to have been a con from the start. They said the world was ending, save your soul. Fire and brimstone. It's an old con, but a powerful one. We're going to explore the tactics they used to capture people, the abuse Tony and Susan Alamo inflicted on their followers, and the challenges the filmmakers faced in telling the story. To go even deeper, 
Don't miss Ministry of Evil, The Twisted Cult of Tony Alamo, now available on Sundance Now. Download the app or go to SundanceNow.com to start watching. But to begin, I want to start with the not-so-simple question of why on earth anyone would join a cult. To take us into the meat of this question, I'm going to turn to Carrie Miller, a former member and defector who helped bring down Tony Alamo. I had reservations. Look, my life's gone on. I want nothing to do with any Alamo stuff. And one of the girls called me up and said, he's raping young girls, and I got involved again. And you don't just partially involved with this. It's, it's all the way. In the studio with Carrie is Fenton Bailey, an executive producer for the docuseries. I think we, we're just allowed to leap in. Because, you know, what? I'm dying to ask you one thing. I didn't fully grasp until I read the whole transcript how, of all people likely to ever be in a cult, I would say you would be the least likely. 17, 18, you had a very clear idea of who you are, what was what. And it was your brother who got involved. And I just thought it was a remarkable story and, a, and a, something that I suppose people think, oh, people who end up in cults are susceptible or have a weakness. And yet here you are saying so clearly, I was not a potential person to join a cult. Can you talk about that a bit more? You hear that a lot. Now, the majority of people that were in this cult and all other cults, usually a lot of them didn't finish high school and they're on that intellectual level. And, you know, those are the ones that are targeted by cults. 99.9% .9 of the people that we got sent out in the streets to talk to rejected us because they knew how to critically think. And your target as a cult is that one-tenth of one percent. That's all you want. Who are subservient, susceptible, and don't really use critical thinking. There's ways to manipulate that, which cults do. There were members in there that had college education and stuff like that, but that was actually a minority. And it, what it shows is the power of these religious cults and the brainwashing. But it is that powerful. I mean, I've seen PhDs that just look totally brainwashed to me. And how did they get to you? I was 16. I, I graduated early. I was in college. And my brother, who, uh, he was a deep sea diver. You know, he was a year older than me and he took off and came back and spent, you know, a summer on a barge and came back with enough money to buy himself a Porsche. I thought, wow, this is great. And he went to Hollywood Boulevard with some friends, got handed a track, got told, came back, sold his Porsche, sold everything, gave all his money to church and joined. About a year later, Bob got sick. And and he got a lymph node infection. Now, the cult doesn't want to pay any medical. So they sent him home to our mother for her and my dad to pay for it. And um, I had moved out. My mom called me up and said, come over and talk to your brother. I said, nah, I got nothing to say to him. You know, she convinced me. And I went over and I talked to him. And we spent a couple hours there talking. And me, I mean, I was on my collegiate debate team. I love the classical God arguments. But then he gets up, he goes over his phone, and he gets Susan Lama on the phone. So I start talking to her. Listen, I want to find out. And, you know, <laughs> I could tell on the phone she was smoking heavy. and <laughs> She was drinking and her words were starting to get and I was like, oh, yeah, what a con, what a con. <laughs> and I went on and on. And then I started debating the, the you know, the, the God arguments with her. And she didn't have a clue as to what I was saying. And she went off and all this stuff. And she couldn't say anything. And she was cursing at me. And I was cursing <laughs> at her on the phone. And, uh, you know, I was thinking, you know, you're supposed to be godly. Well, um, <laughs> and then she broke into this thing. She went into like an Amy McPherson, Catherine Coleman type mode. And just, well, Carrie, you know, when the Lord begun to move upon the and I'm going to tell you, it raised the hair on the back of my neck. She was a good actress. And, you know, see, it freaked me out. And I thought, what the hell has my brother got into? And this was years before Jonestown. I was thinking, you know, she could she'd kill all these people if she wanted to. She's got that much power. I said, I got to get my brother out of here. And, you know, uh, I told Bob, you know, I told her, I said, well, you know, what do I need to do? I don't want to burn in hell. You two, you get in your car and you drive up here as fast as you can. We went up there and 
And I spent years trying to convince my brother. I, it didn't matter what I said to him, I couldn't get him out. The word of God says, I love them who fear me. The mind control, the absolute control. I fell under the power of this. Amen. That was Susan Alamo. You can hear that power in her voice. It's captivating. Carrie was just there to get his brother out. He ended up staying for 15 years. So what happened? What made him cross over? Yes, there was an epiphany. There was a breaking point. But I had to play the game. I had to act like I was a good baby Christian, you know, to pass that tracks and read the Bible and work in the kitchen and do everything, you know. Otherwise, I get thrown out, you know. And I had to be very subtle what I said to my brother because he would report me to Tony Susan Alamo and I'd get kicked out. And, you know, so I had to play along. And I was playing along, playing along, playing along. And I found myself getting institutionalized. And then I fell in love with a beautiful girl in there who had grown up Catholic, everything. And I just fell head over heels, wonkers in love with this beautiful girl. And I said, well, you know, I'm really going to try. I'm going to try to be a believer, try my hardest. And I spent, you know, years with Carol. We were madly in love with each other. We were just lower echelon peons in the group, like 99% of them. We weren't in the upper inner circle. And I was actually happy. I was just doing this. And even in the back of my mind, I'd shoved in the back of my mind, this is crazy, this is nuts. And cults do this a lot. It's called spousal anchoring. So you're in the cult and you can see these followers because you're very clear-eyed about Susan and Tony, but like, how was it that they got people to follow them? I wouldn't call them charismatic. I would call them dominant, powerful. They dominated people's minds, um, you know, and those are people and there's tools and implications which they didn't really have a high intellect to understand, but they could understand, they could follow, they read books, you know, how to manipulate minds and how to control minds and how to dominate. And it, this is tricks that all religious cults use. The members of this cult were caring people. They cared. They cared about things. They didn't have a lot of critical thinking to understand or demand evidence for claims. And they were told things, and it was almost subservient. That's why the targets of cults are, you know, college-age kids, 18, 19, just away from home. They're just breaking away the apron strings of their parents' control and domination. And they're rolling. They're just learning themselves, you know, rational thinking on how to handle themselves. That's the target. That's who you go after. They're people at a crossroads in life who can afford to experiment with alternative lifestyles. In the literature on radicalization, scholars also refer to cognitive openings, moments in a person's life triggered by disruption, whether that's a death in the family, an economic downturn, or political upheaval. These openings make people more susceptible to adopting a new ideology. What you have said really strikes truth in that cult leaders exercise undue influence over their followers. That's Debbie Shriver, author of the book Whispering in the Daylight, the children of Tony Alamo Christian Ministries and their journey to freedom. They are very shrewd in that way. They're very smart in that way. And they look at people and they speak the language of their marks and can use a doctrine that we're familiar with, such as the King James version of the Bible, as Tony and Susan did, but then twist it. I am a living testimony this afternoon that Jesus Christ is a healer. I've had The stories just became more and more outlandish. Well, she had faked cancer for years. She had. I've had terminal cancer for almost six years now. I am standing here this afternoon because you believe God. 
And as you said, you all didn't join because you wanted to be members of a terrible cult and terrible group and abusive group. People are convinced that they're going to something better, something wonderful, something that's going to help them be happier people. The process of indoctrinating the followers is just so shrewd and deliberate. Oh, very true. But I will say one thing. Tony Susan Alamo never said anything that wasn't exact word-for-word scripture out of the King James Mm -hmm. Version of the Bible. Mm -hmm. You've got to look at the product that's being sold here. It's in many ways arbitrary, ambiguous, interpretive, it's symbolic, it's parabolic, and it can be twisted, like you said, Debbie, in just about any direction. This is the problem with Revelation. If you accept that a book written by regular Joes centuries ago is the literal word of God, you have to accept as wise or godly all kinds of behaviors and practices we now consider barbaric. So it's clear to you that they never really believed what they preached. They were in it for the money and the power, is that right? Correct. Yeah. One girl, her mother died and she was allowed to go back to funeral. And the reason you're allowed to go back to funeral is because there's inheritance involved. She came back, I think it was like $40,000 donated to the church, you know, she was sitting in Tony Susan Alamo's place in her, in her living room. And then she happened to mention that her mother had a ring collection, a diamond collection, you know, and she, Susan Alamo, fired her up. That's the <laughs> Lord's money, you know, that's for souls. And you left it there and let your sister take it and all this stuff. She sent her back. And she got those diamonds and those rings and everything and came back and gave them to Susie. Susan actually wore, wore a couple of the rings for years. And when she left, Susan rocked her head back and cackled like a hyena. And she says, can you believe how fucking stupid these people that reminds me of someone. There was something in, in your interview you said that I was like, no, but listen, he, you said, uh, he, Tony, you're talking about Tony, he could take a switchblade, slice somebody's throat, dump them on the street, and everybody would say it was okay. Hmm, who does that remind me of? I was thinking of someone who, while he was campaigning, said he could go out and shoot someone on Fifth Avenue. Right. Do you, do you think there's a similarity there? Oh, exactly. Tony said, well, I'll just tell people that the Lord told me to do it, and they'll believe me. It's hard to explain to an unsaved person. You're unsaved, man. If you, your soul, if you died right now, your soul would be in hell if you're unsaved. Well, I'll disagree with that, but go, go ahead and... Well, you can disagree all you want, but God's right, and you're wrong. God's never wrong. As someone with an inferiority complex, it's hard for me to fathom the mindset of someone with as big an ego as Tony Alamo, who called himself a prophet of God, who was never wrong. It's impressive, the vastness of that lie. It makes us think that there must be something there, some molehill under that mountain, when actually it's just a big pit. How do you turn a pit into a mountain? Whenever I I talk with groups, people will say to me at the beginning, I could never be. How can anybody ever fall susceptible to this? And by the end of our conversation, they kind of think, oh, man, I could be there. Because these leaders are so capable of finding that one vulnerable place, and any one of us can get caught there given the right time or the wrong time. It's manipulation of the unknown which is there, you know, it's non-falsifiable, it's undetectable, it's incontestable, actually. God religion was part of every early civilization because it is whatever the oracle says it is. You know, you can't contest it. They hear from God, you don't. They hear God's voice, you don't. They see God, you don't. But still, it's selling a product that is invisible and imaginary, and it works. 
you are so right, Debbie, when you say that they pick that one vulnerable spot. And I tell people, think of your children. Tell your children. Teach your children how to think, not what to think, how to think. Teach your children to anybody presents anything to them that's a claim of truth. Teach them to say, prove it. You know, show me the evidence. And if it doesn't make sense in your mind and your discernment, don't accept it. Every one of them has some type of chanting involved. Well, the Harry Krishnas and with the Pentecostal type ones, it's speaking in tongues and pleading the blood. A lot of times this chanting and this plead the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus against you, Satan. Satan's there, Satan talking. It's Pavlovian triggers in the brain. And it just shuts it down to your, your critical thinking, your cognitive reasoning, your objective analysis, your subjective rationalization. Everything shuts down. And the only discernment of right and wrong is with the cult leader. It seems like one of the features of cult leaders that I've observed with through people in Alamo's group who have talked to me and from what you're saying is this inconsistency. You know, what's a rule one day? The next day isn't a rule, or you don't even know why you're on report, because it's up to the discretion of the leader. Oh, that's an excellent point. And it does that, and it does that. It's for lunacy. And it's just like, say one thing one day, and then everything, you think you're doing it right, and everything changes. It's because you're always in trouble. You're always getting rebuked. You're always wrong. You are a filthy sinner. You have a dirt brain, you know, who's can't, you know, God's ways are so much above yours. You can't comprehend them. And, you know, you just need to be subservient and obedient to the oracle of God that hears from God. And any thinking on your own is wrong. This reminds me eerily of the interrogation room where I was told I couldn't trust my memories, that I had amnesia, I later read in a declassified CIA interrogation manual about the Alice in Wonderland technique, in which interrogators babble nonsense, sometimes for days, until a suspect thinks they're crazy and breaks. I know what that feels like. Once someone takes control of your memories and perceptions, they have all the power. Police do this in the interrogation room. Cult leaders do this from the pulpit. A lot of people, a lot of Christians say, how do we know it's God's will? We know it's his will because he made a commandment out of it. He says, raise the dead. I just wanted to ask one thing, Carrie. That's executive producer of the series, Leslie Mattingly. We touched on it in the series, and I know that we've been told by many ex-members about how they joined looking for some kind of camaraderie. They wanted to save the world, save the planet. All these awful things are going on around them. And then just like with you, years pass and, and you're in it. And you talked about that you were also became indoctrinated. Can you explain a little bit about how that process happened? What were the tactics that actually caused the brainwashing or which you know caused you to, to stay? I mean, uh, in talking to different ex-members, the same story kind of repeats over and over about the tactics that were used. Yes, a lot of this stuff has been documented and studied psychologically. And, you know, even the psychiatrists I talked to, you know, Hanan Block, Leo West, Margaret Singer, and they talk about it. And they say, we really don't understand this. We don't understand how it works. You can sit there, tell these people everything that makes perfect sense and nothing works. Everything is blocked. I believe they call it snapping. Boom, all of a sudden out of no freaking where, a light bulb goes off in your head like, wow, why am I believing this? 
And it's these tactics that you mentioned, we've touched on them a little bit here today. The cult is entirely separatist compounds. You're separated from the world. You have nothing to do with the world. You're not allowed to go anywhere by yourself. I was in Tony Sue's bedroom in the, uh, up in the mansion there. And on their bookshelf is the methods that were used to brainwash Korean and Chinese prisoners of war and how Hitler mesmerized the nation and uh, books on brainwashing and stuff like that. I mean, they read that stuff. It's really like we said before, you have to attack the their critical thinking. You have to eliminate it. One thing about cons, they're very cunning in reading human nature and reading people. They know the ones that they can say, hey, get a wooden board, have four big men hold your son up, your daughter up, and beat them bloody with this giant 150 times at my command. In California, people started making these accusations that I still love Carrie and I missed him. So I had the devil in me. Justin is Carrie's son who was beaten bloody with a wooden paddle 150 times. At that point, I felt like a, a lamb led to the slaughter. Every single time Tony Alamo was going to issue a beating, somebody's life was going to change forever. Who willingly walks into the pit of hell? We did over and over again as kids. I'll be honest with you, Leslie. Somebody asked me, says, well, you know, if Alamo told you to beat your son bloody, would you have done it? My honest answer is, I don't know. You know psychiatrists have asked me that. And my honest answer is, I don't know. You were sleeping on the floors and eating out of garbage and, and also keeping the books. So, and you knew it was a, you knew it was a criminal enterprise because you were doing this double bookkeeping system. What was your snap moment? Because I thought that was so powerful when you talk about a snap. It's like like being someone snapping their fingers and waking you up. What was that moment? When I was driving Tony around town and he kept pulling up that bottle of pills. <laughs> we got back up to the mansion up on the ridge, Georgia Ridge, and he says, here, take this. I took that thing and I, I'm telling you, you know, I hadn't had any drugs, any marijuana or anything for years, you know, and I got a higher than a kite. I was walking around high. That was a snap moment for me. I said, that's what this dude's doing, you know? He's like popping pills, prescription drugs and stuff. And then everything came together. Sitting there talking with him, cursing with him, hearing the stuff they said about the cult members, how stupid they were. And then doing the books and seeing where the hell is this money coming from? What astounds me in hearing Carrie talk about this is that he was aware for quite a while that he was in a toxic environment. But he didn't leave. He couldn't leave. There were consequences. Usually you got brought up, put on the carpet up at the Alamo Mansion with them in front of a bunch of older brothers, and, and they would talk to you. If you didn't want to leave your wife and kids, well, you had about 10 of these big bruisers who Alamo kept around them all the time to escort you out. I don't know if you resisted in any way. You were on the floor and you were getting pounded. But if they felt there was a chance to either use their spouse to get them to submit, be servient and obedient, and then they would say, if you leave the cult, one of three things is going to happen to you. You've probably heard this before, Debbie and Leslie. You're going to end up on a Morris lab, you're going to end up a drug addict, or you're going to end up gay. And at the end, you're going to burn in hell. The night that I got thrown out of the cult, I left Alamo's mansion when he took over my business and had Carol write up corporate resolutions, handing over all our bank accounts and everything to Tony Alamo, to the cult. And I didn't care about that. All I wanted was Carol to get kicked out because she wouldn't leave. And I went down and I tried to talk to her. I said, honey, this is just crazy. And she just, she just kept crying and saying, I don't want to burn in hell. I don't want to burn in hell. I'm like, come with me, leave with me. We got to get out of here. And she's like, no, I don't want to burn in hell. I couldn't get through to her. In every one of these groups, 
One of the methods of controlling the faithful is to make them understand that if they leave, whoever's left behind will be punished. And certainly that was the case with this group. If you displeased Tony, your loved ones, if there were any left behind, were going to suffer. Debbie, you, you, in your book, you said, I think it's very hard for people to understand why you don't just get out. If you're in a cult and it's horrible and people are being horrible to you and you're being abused, why don't you just leave? And, and I think from an outsider perspective, that is the number one question. And yet at the same time, it's a question that in a way doesn't reveal understanding about how a cult dynamic works. It's not that the cult necessarily imprisons you and puts physical walls around you, although that may be a part of it too. There are other more powerful dynamics that are internalized so the person preventing you leaving is... You. Right. When Tony died, my, the kids that were in the book, I, I met with them and said, so how do you feel about this? And they said, well, we kind of thought then that would free everybody. And I think, you know, I think the, the big realization there is Tony could never free anybody. We can just free ourselves because we're wired with a set of beliefs and... While there are lots of threats and lots of those belief systems are reinforced by Tony, by the bad guys. Spencer, who left, said, at one point, I knew I would go to hell going outside the cult. But I thought, it's got to be better than the hell inside the cult. It's the same dynamic, isn't it, really, in abusive marriages or relationships that the, often the victimized person can't leave. Except there's a community of abuse here, too. There's a doctrine here that makes it even more difficult than a spouse who's being abused leaving home. There's something even bigger there. And you said that when the cult leader dies, you know, you'd think everyone would be really happy. Mm -hmm. But yes, that isn't really the case. When Tony Alamo died, he was kind of anticlimactic for me. It's like, yeah, well, so what? And people said, well, you know, now the cult will end. I said, no, it won't. It will keep going on. It will continue. You know, there's money. There's overseas money. This indoctrination just doesn't end. Debbie brought it up. It's not so much Tony Alamo. Tony Alamo is going to free you. You have to free your own mind. And you brought up something, Finn. I call it a combination of battered victim syndrome and Stockholm syndrome. You coming forward, not just today and not for the sake of this docuseries, but every step along the way, you were being shot at and you still proceeded to try to get Justin out of there with your brother and, and the other kids. You going after him for Justin was the first time the headlines really came out saying that this pastor, there was suspected child abuse going on within this ministry. So that, you know, even though it took another 20 years or more, maybe 30 years to get a conviction, you put him on the radar. So to that, I think many people can thank you. My involvement and my feelings towards the cult. I have a few of the former member adult friends that I'm very close with. But the legacy of this cult and everything, for me, revolves around the victim children. And that's why I have so much love for what Debbie's doing. And those are the ones who really suffered. They didn't join. Even though, you know, we were six, 17, 18 years old and we were brainwashed, we still had a choice to join. We still had 18 years of normal social life in the world. They didn't. They were born there and what they went through. And, you know, and my thoughts and my ideas of the cult, the legacy, my, you know, is... They're recovering. 
because that's going to stick with them the rest of their lives, and they're going to be dealing with it. Carrie, I think the kids are amazing and teach us so much about resilience and teach us so much about courage. And at the same time, your voice really validates them. There are parents, they have families still in the cult who they feel so conflicted about. And I really applaud your stepping forward to help them and to speak from your generation to them. Well, thank you. You know, I do have people come up to me and say, thank you. Thank you. You know, you you ended Alamo and you did all this stuff. And I'm like, no, I didn't end Alamo. You know, five little girls in Falk, Arkansas are the ones that ended him. They sat there in the courtroom and they, they decided his fate. And it's not just uh, what you did for your son. It's it's also in the initial, the very beginning, going in for for the sake of your brother. And I mean, I think you're, it's just an amazing story. And the way you used any and every possible tool at your disposal, whether it was a lawsuit, whether it was tax and money, or whether it was whatever it was, you know, it's using anything, any possible means to beat this nightmare. For anybody who was in my situation and of the ex-members and would have had the opportunity to do this, could have done it. Yes, but you did it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And it's become the story of my life. You know, this feels like the most important segment of my life. And I like to just say one thing about the children. I am amazed. I love to hear these, you know, their culture, they're grown, they're grown adults now, but you know, who were born and raised in the cult, they seem to have a better grip on overcoming the brainwashing and the doctrine than the adults. They have a strong bitterness against a lot of the adults in there because you let this happen to me. And we did. We blindly, obediently financed and built that empire of pedophilic abuse. And we did it blindly. Yeah, we're accountable for that. And and look back on it, that's why, you know, I have a, a zeal and a desire to do everything I can to try and make it right for these kids. We're all wired to seek answers, explanations, and to respect authority to one degree or another. Our individual thresholds are different but we all have a breaking point. We can all be shoved into a cognitive opening by a sufficiently traumatic or dramatic or transforming moment. It doesn't have to be something violent or shocking. So we should be very careful when we write cult members off as brainwashed sheep. Manipulation is real, but at the same time, we are often active participants in our own conversion. We're not talking about clockwork orange and pride open eyelids here. If there's any hope for these people to escape the grip of cults and to rebuild their lives in the aftermath, we have to believe in their power to change themselves. We were nothing more in that compound than slaves who basically did what we were told. And if you didn't, there wasn't just mental repercussions and there wasn't just isolation, but there were physical repercussions. Word of God says, I love I think the question that still throbs for me after all this is why these people were attracted to Tony and Susan in the first place. There must have been some warmth there, something glowing. Could it really have been all fear and intimidation? Or were they filling some void? Even a con man who tells grandma he's going to repave her driveway or he's a prince in Nigeria is pretending to offer something she thinks is valuable. Were the Alamos offering salvation? Purpose? Whatever it was, it worked, and it made Tony Alamo rich. Tune in next episode, where we look into the Alamo organization as a vast criminal empire. Thanks for listening. 
I hope you'll subscribe to The Truth About True Crime on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 